This is Lead Minister Nathan Pelahowski of RSCC. I just want to welcome you to the RSCC podcast. Here's something I want you to know. I want you to know that you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says that you matter when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Today I hope this message challenges you and encourages you to take your next faith step. Good morning. All right, let's try that again. Good morning. All right, it is good to be with you. My name is Nathan, and it, I'm a preacher here, and we're, st- we're in this series, and it's kind of been a wild ride. Uh, we haven't made any of this stuff up. It is the book of Judges, and we have been all over the place, and today we're in Judges chapter 9, and I'll, I'll explain to that explain what that means to you in a second, but I want to catch you up. If you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Judges, and it refers to a time period in the Israelites' history when they first get into the promised land, and there's kind of a cycle that you read throughout the the pages uh, of Judges, and it's sin, destruction, sorrow, deliverance, peace, sin. You see that over and over and over again, so usually what happens... Because the Israelites do something wrong, and then they're taken over by a foreign nation. Then God raises up a judge, and then things are good for a little while. And then they go through that cycle over and over again. And that is where we're at today. All they had to do was obey, and everything would be okay. They don't obey, and that's why we have the book of Judges. And today, it's going to be a little different than the other judges that we have looked at. It's, and we'll explain what that all means, but... Today is like a warning. I think this chapter, chapter 9, is where we're at. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now. Um, but it's like a warning of what could happen if we find ourselves giving in to the issues that we see in, in Judges chapter 9. So it, it's not like the other, other chapters so far. It doesn't really have a happy ending, really. It doesn't really have a great judge coming in to save the day. It's more of, of if you do this, you will wreck yourself or you will make a mess into your life. So that's where we're going to be today. But first, I want to tell you a story I heard this week of a, of a colonel. There was a, well, he was a, you know officer in the army, but then he got, you know, kind of the, the, moved up to the colonel, and he was, he was feeling himself. He was like, hey, this is awesome. This is what I've wanted my entire life. And he would catch himself as he walked by the mirror. He would, like, salute himself, saying, hey, I'm colonel now. Like, he was like, he thought he was a big deal. And as he's getting his new office ready one day, he hears a, a knock on the door, and he goes, hey, who is it? And it, the man says, well, it's Private Andrews. You know, he's like, hey, hold on, Private Andrews. So this colonel's like, I want to impress this kid. So he picks up his phone, and he starts saying, yes, Mr. President. Of course, Mr. President. Right away, Mr. President. And then he hangs up the phone and he calls in the private. He says, come on in, son. He's like, sorry, I was just on the phone with the president. And the, the, private is, the private's just standing there and the colonel's like, hey, what, what can I do for you? And, and the, the, guy, the private's real embarrassed. His face has turned red. He's like, well, the communications team has sent me over here to hook up your phone. And the colonel is like really embarrassed. And I just like that story because I think it goes with what we're talking about today. Like his pride got a hold of him and it made him look foolish. So I want to ask you a question and I think it's a, a good question to think about. Has your pride ever gotten you into a mess? Has your pride ever gotten you into a mess? You said something, you did something, you acted in a certain way, you thought a certain way, then you said it out loud and you're like, man, I wish I would have never done this, right? Has your pride ever gotten you into a mess? I know for me, it definitely has. I can remember this day like it was yesterday. It was back in college, so about 10 years ago now. And it was when Whitney and I, we weren't dating yet. We're like that talking stage. And I don't really know what that means. It's like we're halfway interested in each other. So we're kind of showing some interest. And at the beginning of the school year, we play intramural volleyball. And I'll I'll say intramural, meaning no one comes to watch. 
No one really cares on campus about it. But if you're in it, it's a big deal because at the end of the tournament, like at the end of the season, if you win, you get a t-shirt, right? That's, that's the big deal. So no one really cares about intramural volleyball. But I had a game and, and I invited Whitney, like we were kind of interested and I don't know if she liked me yet or whatever. I invited her and, and after like the third time of her saying no, she eventually said yes. So she showed up and it was like our first game of the season. Now I picked this team because I had to get, I had to play every intramural for a, a school credit for PE, and I picked this team, and I knew this team was going to be a little shaky. I had about four of us, guys and girls, who were really good. Like, I knew, like, okay, we're going to be okay. Well, you need more than four, right? And then the rest of the team, I, I kind of didn't know how good they were. I asked them, and they said they were good. They looked somewhat athletic, and they looked like, okay, they should be good. Um, and I don't want to mention any names, but you know one of those people, and he used to work here, Dalton, right? I should know by looking how short he was. He's not good at volleyball, right? But he was on the team, and uh, so we had four solid people, and the rest of the team were kind of a wild card. Well, I'm not the greatest, but I'm just going to tell you, those guys over there were not very good at all, right? I'm not being mean. They're great people, just not great at volleyball. So we played the first team, and it's like the best team that we could play. Like they got a, a, former, a guy who played volleyball in high school, a bunch of former you know, girls playing volleyball, and, and they were so good that they, they realized real quick, like, hey, this team has some weak spots, some weak members, and they kept hitting it at one person over and over and over again. And I mean, this poor girl couldn't get the ball over the net, return the ball over the net if like our lives all depended on it. Like if the world was at risk and if she had to get it over the net to you know, save the world, it wasn't happening. We're all gone, right? And she's a nice girl. But it, so I, I, I like to win and I, you know, you don't, winning's not always everything, but well, you're using your time to win already. I mean, you're using your time to be there. You might as well win, right? Like you're there already. So let's make it happen. Well, I know this girl is sitting there watching me and in my mind, I don't know why, but like at 20 years old, I'm thinking like, if I'm really good at volleyball, like, and I look really athletic, like, there's no way she's going to leave tonight, and we're not going to want to, she's not going to want to date me. Like, if I'm really good and we win, she's like, oh, that guy's so good at volleyball, and I want to date him. Like, that was what was going through my mind. I don't know why, but it was, right? So we, that's not happening. So I'm like, I gotta, I gotta do some, you know, I gotta do something about this, like, or we're going to lose, and this one girl is going to cost us the whole game, right? Every game. So I started jumping in front of her, and I started saying stuff under my breath. I started yelling at my other teammates. Like, I started making a mess out of myself really, really bad. And Whitney's shaking her head right now, so she remembers this. And, and she probably thought, I know she thought, she's like, I don't know if I want to date this guy. Right? So we ended up losing anyways, right? So I, I didn't help us at all. And, and in, the mean, in the process, I made some friends mad. I embarrassed myself. I, I made, you know, I kind of hurt other people's feelings that shouldn't have been hurt. And I left that day with, with you know, probably a, a better view in Whitney's eyes than I actually was, right? And then she left that day. He's like, that guy is kind of a jerk. Like his pride got the m most of him, right? And, and if your pride has ever made a mess out of you, you know what I'm talking about. And, and here's what I want to say today. It's kind of something we'll, we'll see throughout this story is when your pride gets the best of you, it makes a mess of you, doesn't it? Come on now, like, you know, like, if your pride gets the best of you, it makes a mess of you, right? If it, get, it makes you say things you don't want to say, makes you do things you don't want to do, it hurts people, it judges people, it's the opposite of love when your pride gets the best of you, you know what I mean? Like, it makes a mess of you. Pride creates some messes. And this is nothing new. In the book of Proverbs, we're warned about this. It says, pride goes before destruction, meaning pride will bring destruction and chaos into your life, right? It's the promise, right? Solomon says, hey, pride goes before destruction. You want to know how to destroy your life? Live prideful. And we're warned about this over and over and over again in Scripture. 
But I think it's important to specify or be specific of what type of pride we're talking about. Because we're not talking about this idea where you, make an, you have an accomplishment, you graduate college, you get a raise, you buy a new house, you're like, I, I'm proud of myself. We're not talking about that. You should have some pride in that. Like, you should be happy and you should thank God for allowing those things to happen in your life. Here's what we're talking about though. This is a type of pride and I, I, it's, it's kind of like part of it's my opinion and then part of it is like the Webster's Dictionary version. So an overly high opinion of oneself. Or an exaggerated esteem of self, and this is where I put, that leads to arrogance making you believe you're better than others. So the type of pride we're really looking at is this idea that when you look at your life, you look at your accomplishments, your money, you, you know, your bank account, your house, your cars, your, your, your athletic talent, your, your faith at times, because what do Christians really get prideful about? Where they're at in their faith sometimes, right? And it's looking at those things and saying, man... I'm just better than everybody else. I'm just better than them, right? It's having an overly high opinion of oneself that basically ultimately leads to you having arrogance that makes you believe you're better than others. So here's what I want to do. And I just want to be open and I want you to be honest with me. I want you to participate. I know I like to, I make you guys raise your hand a lot. And the reason I do that is because I believe as you're paying attention and you're reflecting and thinking, that's when God can work in your life because God can't work through stuff you won't bring to him. So here's what we're going to do. Don't look around. Don't worry about anybody else. I got a question for you. How many of you deal with pride? Just raise your hand up, right? Come on now. Raise your hand. How many of you just deal with pride? And some of you aren't raising your hand because you're so prideful. You're like, that preacher's telling me to raise my hand. I'm not going to do it, right? I get it. So we see, I know how this works. How many of us deal with pride? And the type of pride I was talking about, so many of us. And it's the type of pride that's like, it's real subtle. And it's like, well, you know, I'm not the greatest, but at least I'm not them. Right? And it's like this side of the room is like, hey, we aren't sinners, but I see who's on this side of the room, and I know I'm a lot better than them. Right? We're not, we are sinners, but I, I know I'm a little bit better than them. Or I may not be the greatest, but I'm not them. Right? And it's like that. Or, and we all kind of struggle with that in some way. And if you think about it, pride is easier to see in others than it is ourselves, isn't it? It's easier to see in others. But, but think about this. How come when, when you're in relationship issues, it's always the other person's fault? I've never done marriage counseling or couple counseling and someone come in my office and say, you know what? I am the problem, right? I am the, all the problem. It's, it's like, no, they're the problem over there. Or how about when we're driving, everybody else is a bad driver and we're like, you know, Jeff Gordon or Dale Earnhardt Jr. in our minds, right? Or in, when you're in an argument, do you always have to have the last word? Because that's what I'm really bad at. Like, I want to get the last word and the last shot. Or, here's a perfect example, perfect test. Imagine you take a group photo, okay? Who's the first person you look at in that photo? You're looking for yourself. All right, it gets better. Now, if you look at yourself and you look good, what type of photo is it? It's a good photo. It doesn't matter if everybody else is like drooling, mid-sneeze, picking their nose. It does not matter. If you look good, it's a good photo. Now, take that same photo, same group of people. Who do you look at first? You look at yourself. And if you look bad, guess what it is? 
Now it's a bad photo. Everybody else could look like perfect and all put together, but if you look bad, it's a bad, you know, bad photo. And pride is so easy to see in others, but it's hard to see in ourselves. But it's so common. And here's what happens when, when we call, you know, necessary sins that people call them. When, when pride, which is a sin, it's so common. What, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to say, well, it's really not that big of a deal because everybody struggles with it. And if everybody struggles with it, then it must not be that big of a deal, right? But here's what God says or what God's word says. Uh, James in a letter says this, God opposes, aka God is against the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Right? It says God is against pride. God does not like his people to go out living pridefully. And I love what C.S. Lewis, the great author and theologian said, he goes, pride is the granddaddy of all sins. Pride is the granddaddy of all sins. Because we know this, that pride creates all kinds of issues. Creates relationship issues, creates faith issues, creates you know, issues with God. It pushes God out of our lives. It makes us judgmental. It makes us hateful. It makes us treat people in a way that we shouldn't treat them. It makes us hypocritical. It, it takes credit for God's work. And the reason that God is so opposed to pride is simply is because pride's a wrecking ball to our relationship with God. Because by very definition, to be prideful is to be full of oneself, right? To, to be full of you. And when you're full of you, you don't have room for anybody else. You don't have room for God. So what pride does is it pushes God out of our lives and says, God, you know what? I did this by myself. I accomplished this. I'll come to you when I need you. But God, it's all me, right? It's looking in the mirror and thinking, man, I am a bad man or I'm a bad woman, right? Like I, I am top dog. Pride is a wrecking ball of our relationship because it pushes God out. But here's what God knows. God knows when your pride gets the best of you, it makes a mess of you. So with all that being said, today we're going to look at a warning about a man who lets his pride get a mess of him. The best of him, and it makes a mess of him. So last week we left off and we looked at Gideon. And Gideon, God found him and he was in a wine press and he was in a hole. And God says, hey, no longer are you going to be hiding out. I'm going to make you into somebody. I'm going to be with you. Are you going to be with me, Gideon? And he takes 300 soldiers and Gideon, and they beat the Mennonites. And they, they just, you know, push out the Mennonites. And then Gideon has some success, right? And that success for a little while, go, the credit goes to God. But eventually what happens is the success gets to Gideon's Head and Gideon in chapter 8 and 7, kind of specifically chapter 8, he does some things he's not supposed to do. He kills some people, some Israelites he's not supposed to kill. He makes like this gold vest and he starts acting like all the other rulers around him. And then he dies, right? And we, we see that his life started off pretty good and it was the golden era of the Israelites for 40 years, but there are some pride issues in that. Well, this is what happens after Gideon dies in chapter 8. It says this, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. So again, they find themselves giving themselves to the false gods, acting like everybody else around them. And they set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their god. So we remember right after Gideon died, this was what happened. And then in chapter 9, we're introduced to a man named this, Abimelech. And Abimelech is the man we're going to talk about today. And it's interesting. Because he's given a whole chapter, but he's not a judge. He's more of an anti-judge. But what's important about him is he's the son of Gideon. And remember a couple of weeks ago, at the very beginning of this series, 
we talked about how we're one generation away. If we're not careful, we're one generation, generation away from a generation not even knowing God. Well, here we're going to see Gideon, maybe the, the greatest judge of all the judges, son, one of his, get this, one of his 70s son, remember I said he, he did some things after success, well our boy got busy, if you get what I'm saying, after success, and he had 70 sons, and he named this son Abimelech, which basically, basically means my father is king. And why that's important is, it's, it's basically translated, not my father Gideon is king, but the Lord God is my king. And Gideon's kind of way of naming that, scholar said, like why he named him that is because he wanted to make sure Abimelech and his sons knew that God is supposed to be king. But what we're going to see with Abimelech is he doesn't care what his name stands for. That he doesn't care what his father wants. You're going to see this man who, who is very prideful, that his pride is going to get the best of him. And it's going to make a mess of him. That's what we're going to see with Abimelech. So in Judges chapter 9, you start reading his story. And there's going to be a lot of verses today. And I'll explain them the best I can. And we're going to summarize a lot of chapter 9. But here it goes. Abimelech, son of Jerubbel, which is Gideon. God changed his name to that. But basically it means Baal butt kicker, right? Went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them, and went to his brothers, went to his, sorry, went to his brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan. So his mom's side of the family, we got to explain this. Gideon had 70 wives and some of these wives, which Abimelech's mom would have been a concubine, basically a slave or servant. And, and she also had sons or children with other people, not Gideon, all right? So he, uh, Abimelech's got his dad's side of the family and he's got his mom's side of the family. On his dad's side of his family, he's got 70 brothers, right? So what he does, he's like, okay, I'm smart. I'm going to go to my mom's side of the family, right? So that's what he does. He, go to, he goes to his mom's side of the family. And, and he says, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which was kind of this, this major city in Israel. And he says, ask the city of Shechem, which is better for you? To have all 70 uh, of my father's son rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. Abimelech basically says, hey, listen, uh, Shechem, what is it, what, what, what's better? To have 70 people rule over you, my brothers and me, or just to have one of us? And he goes, remember, remember, I'm your flesh and blood, a.k.a. I should be your king. Now, they shouldn't have a king at all. They shouldn't actually have a so-called ruler like this at all. Remember, they're supposed to obey God. But he's like, Shechem, what do you want, me or the 70. And, and it continues. So th this is what happens. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he's related to us. They're like, hey, we don't know who, what's a good option, but you're related to us. You'll take care of us. You be our king. And they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal. And Abimelech used it, used it get this, to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. And it continues, and he went to his father's home in Oprah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, right? So he killed all of Gideon's other sons. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem, the crown of Abimelech king. So Abimelech says, Shechem, who do you want to be king? All right, say, who do you want to rule over you? 70 or one? And they're like, well, you're related to us. We trust you. We want you to be the ruler. So what they do is they say, okay, you can be the ruler. You can lead us. And it says he, they gave him 70 shekels and they gave him some startup money to start up his, his, you know, his kingdom. And what does he do with this money? 
He takes this money and he hires some ruthless scoundrels, it says. And what do they do? They go and they kill every one of Gideon's sons, except one. And he would have died too if he, if he wasn't hiding. And then Abimelech looks around and says, you know what? Hey, there's only one of us left. Guess what? I get to be king. And he becomes king, right? And, and this is such a mess. This is such a mess. First, there was never supposed to be a king. So this king, in theory, isn't a king at all. Because the Israelites don't have a king. God is who they're supposed to look to. And second of all, when they go to pick a king, what do they do? They pick a brother-murdering, prideful man. And we, we can say this about him. His pride got the best of him. and made a mess of him. And he kills all of his brothers. Well, he thought he did, right? So his one brother, Jotham, he, he survives. And eventually in chapter 9, he comes out of hiding. And he goes to the people of Israel and he tells them a parable, right? A story with a, 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 it's a story and he uses some illustration. And he uses the illustration of trees. It's really weird, right? And he starts saying, well, there one day there was a kingdom of trees. And, and the other trees wanted a king. So first they, they go to the olive tree and they say, hey, do you want to be king? He's like, why would I want to be king? Like, I'm making a bunch of money off what I already have. I don't want to be king. Then they go to the fig tree, right? And he's like, I don't want to be king. And they go to all these trees. Eventually... They get to a thorn bush or a tumbleweed in some translations. And everybody else said no, but they got this last option. And he's like, okay, I'll be king. And this is what we read. I believe it's in verse 14. It's going to be about the trees. He says, finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. All right? So if you want me to be your king, you better listen to me. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Here's what he said, basically. I'll be king, but we're going to burn down all the other trees. And the Israelites hear this story and they're like, whoa, this is a crazy story. Who in the world would ever agree to this? And Jotham says, this is exactly what you guys did. By allowing Abimelech to be king. And then he says this. He, he kind of says, gets a little uh, preachy. And he says, have you acted honorably in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to you know, Gideon and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. Which we talked about last week. But today you have revolted against my father's family? You murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech it made Abimelech the son of his female slave king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you? He's like, what are you doing? He's like, my dad did all this for you. And you pick my punk brother to be king? And he kills all of Gideon's other sons except me? So Jotham is saying, here's the issue. He's like, you made a prideful, worthless, self-interested man, the leader over them. He's like, you made a prideful, worthless, self-interested man king over you. And because of this, it's going to come back on you. He's like, because of this, you're going to have all kinds of issues. And that's exactly what happens. Throughout chapter 9, you will see Abimelech is an awful king. He's a prideful ruler. He's the opposite of any judge that we have read about. He is the one man with the worst chapter and the worst record in all the book of Judges, maybe. 
until you get to the end, it's chaos. Depicted a prideful, self-interested, worthless man to be the ruler. And that pride made a mess. And he rules for a very short time. It says he rules for three years. And after those three years, we, we see in verse 22, God steps in. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons the shedding, and the, the shedding of their blood might be avenged on their brother. So after three years, God steps in and says, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to open Shechem's eyes. After three years, we can relate to this. After a couple years of bad presidents sometimes or bad leaders, we get tired of it. Things start to happen. Well, they get tired of this. So they say, forget Abimelech. They start acting out a little bit. And then eventually Shechem, they, they kind of pick a new man to rule over them. They say, hey, this guy will protect us from Abimelech. So they get some confidence. So what they start doing is they start having big parties and they get drunk and they start mocking Abimelech in public. Well, meanwhile, they're not very smart. Abimelech has kind of soldiers all over the place. And one of Abimelech's men reports back to him basically saying, and you can read it in the coming verses, he says basically, hey, they're mocking you, Abimelech. They're not scared of you anymore, Abimelech. Here's what you need to do. You need to come back, and at night, while they're partying, you need to come destroy them. So that's what you see in verses 25 and 24, maybe. And they do that. So Abimelech brings some men back. And what happens is he attacks them, right? He attacks them, and he starts killing them. And then it says eventually he, he chased a thousand people into a tower. And then while they're stuck in this tower, he breaks off some branches and then puts them around the base of this tower, and he lights them on fire. And he kills a thousand people in one instance. And he basically says, anybody who's against me, just like the, the story, the, the, the parable, anybody who's against me, is going to get killed. And then you can jump ahead to, to verse 45. It'll be on the screen in a second. The next verse, there we go. Verse 45, it says this. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he captured it and killed the people. And he destroyed the city and scattered salt all over it. So destroy Shechem, all right? Well, other cities start to hear this. And they get a little afraid because they know they, they haven't been living the way Abimelech has wanted them to live. So they run to their towers of the city, and the towers were their strongholds, the last line of defense. So he gets to this one city in verse 53, and all the citizens are in the tower, and he starts lining up these branches around the tower. He, start, he, he gets ready to light it on fire. Then God's judgment comes, and God's judgment comes in a way you can't even make up. Here, here, here it says, a woman dropped an, uh, an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull, right? So in modern day, a woman dropped a KitchenAid out of the window and cracked his skull, right? That's what happens. He doesn't die from it, but he's like, hey, I'm not going to be another man killed by a woman in the book of Judges. So he tells his servant, go ahead, kill me. And the servant kills him, and Abimelech's time is over. And then we read at the very end of chapter 9, this is what's going to happen, basically. God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by, mur by murdering his 70, 70 brothers. So Abimelech's killed, and God allowed this to happen. But God also made the uh, people of Shechem pay for their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Crazy story. In the middle of the book of Judges, that doesn't seem really to tell us anything, but here's what we can summarize. All kinds of mess because of all kinds of pride. So I started looking at this, and I'm like, okay, 
How am I going to tell a story about this wild king who's killed by a woman with a KitchenAid? I'm not quite sure. And what are we going to take from it? So I started reading these commentaries, started listening to other people talk about it. And there's one thing that I saw that, while reading it and other people saw. So this isn't just original to me. But here's what we see. And remember, I said this is a warning. So here's the main takeaway. The problem isn't out there. It's in here. The problem isn't out there. It's in here. We're nine chapters in. And the first time, for the first time, the oppression and the issues and the chaos and the killing and the destruction doesn't come from a foreign nation. It comes from one of their very own, Abimelech, who happens to be the son of the greatest judge, Gideon. For the first time, you see that the issues were not created by the world around them, but were created by their own disobedience. And we see what, we've been, what we should have seen all along in chapter 9. And, and maybe 9 chapters in, we should have seen it at the, the very beginning. That they are their own problem. They're their own problem. Not the Mennonites, not the Canaanites, but the Israelites. They're their own problem. Matter of fact, if you, if you kind of know the structure of Judges, you don't hardly read about God in this book at all, this chapter at all. And the only time you do read about God is when? When God's bringing judgment down. What, what's happened in the other eight chapters so far? When something goes bad, what do they do? They cry out to God. Well, nine chapters in, that's done. No crying out to God. Instead, they say, we don't need God. What we're going to do is we're going to elect a new ruler. And how it works is we're going to pick somebody who is Gideon's son because Gideon was our judge. And really basically the next king after our one leader dies would be his son, right? So they pick Abimelech. And Abimelech's their their issue. And it's Abimelech's own pride and own backstabbing that leads to his downfall. It's not another nation. It's nobody else. It's Abimelech. His pride got the best of him and what did it do? It made a mess of him. Their issues came from within. And I think that's something that we it's a warning. Because here's what happens. You know this, I do this, you do this. We say, well, hey, the, the problem's all the Democrats. The problem's all the Republicans. It's the liberals, it's the conservatives, it's the millennials, it's the, you know, boomers, it's, you know, it's whatever, it's everybody else. And we're like, God, here's what I need rescued from. I need rescue from the world out there. I need rescued from the other side. I need rescued from my pain. I need rescued from my money issues. I need this and this and this. And we may need this, but that's not what we need most. What Judges shows us what we need most is this. What we need most is freedom from our own heart and the messes we have made ourselves. We don't need to worry about what's going on out there at times. We need to worry about what's going on in here. Abimelech's issue wasn't that these other nations were so strong and, and they were so you know, oppressive. His issue was he didn't figure this out. He became a bad leader and he created all kinds of messes. So this account is a warning for all of us. Like, hey, we gotta listen to this. A problem isn't out there. It's in here. And that's hard to hear. But if you start thinking about it, my biggest enemy and your biggest enemy is not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. 
It's not the conservatives. It's not the liberals. It's not another generation. It's not my ex. It's not my parents. It's not my friends. The biggest enemy in my life and the biggest enemy in your life that creates more messes in your life than anybody else is you. And it's me. All right, here's what we know. We know what we ought to do. We know how we should live. We know the type of spouse we should be, the type of son we should be, the type of daughter we should be. We know how we should act and not, not act. But what do we do? We sabotage our own stories. Why? Because the problem for so many of us isn't out there. It's in here. So what we need is we need a heart change. The book of Judges is this book where it's God's chosen people. The people who should have been closest to God. And God says, all you have to do is obey. Here's, here's everything. Just obey. It's going to be okay. But they kept creating messes for themselves over and over again. Just like we do in our lives. And we need a heart change. What we actually need is we need a, we need a Savior. That can what? Who can deliver us not only from the curse around us, because there are things around us that are issues, but the curse within us as well. We need a Savior who doesn't just fix our circumstances. We need a Savior who can fix us. We don't need a king who can rule over us and create rules and policies. We need a king who can teach us how to live. What we need... Ultimately, we need a Savior that says, it's time to unhitch from your pride. We need a Savior who says, there's a better way. We need a Savior who can do something that we can't do. And that's who Jesus is. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus' ministry is real simple. When he starts ministering, when he's, you know, three years, three and a half years or so, what's he tell people to do? You can basically summarize it in this, unhitch. Unhitch from what? Unhitch from your tradition. Unhitch from your sin. Unhitch from your pain. Un unhitch from your mess. Unhitch from your pride. And here's the application. Unhitch from all those things and then do what? Follow me. Trust me. Follow my example. Follow what I do. Follow how I said to live. Unhitch from everything else. All the issues in your life that is creating messes, unhitch from that. Unhitch from those. And that's what Judges ultimately points to us is, is this. Like God sends these judges who are just humans and they're all flawed. Eventually, like Gideon, even though he was amazing for so long, by the end, he's an awful example who raises a son who acts like a punk, who kills a bunch of his brothers, all of his brothers, and does things they should never do. They're all broken saviors. We need a savior who can actually tell us how to do this. That's what Jesus did. And I love how Paul explained how Jesus lived in a letter called Philippians. He says this, in your relationship with one another, have the same what? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. And then he continues, and it gets real cool. Rather, he made himself nothing, humility, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, you want to know 
how to unhitch from all that stuff in your life, all that pride. He says, have the same mindset. Literally means change the way you think. And why is he saying change the way you think? Because if you don't change the way you think, you'll never change the way you live. Right? Because your life moves in the direction of what? Your strongest thoughts. So Paul is saying, you need to change how you think. And that's so much about faith. And I don't think we've talked about that enough. If I want to become more, less prideful, if I want to become more humble, what do I have to do? I have to stop thinking prideful thoughts. I have to stop thinking about doing prideful things. I have to stop thinking prideful things against other people, right? I have to change the way I think. And he says, here's how you should change the way you think. Not think of pride, but have humility. And the kind of the example is he says, Christ, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And what Paul is saying, he's like, this is what Christ did. He said he was at the throne of the Father and he, and he came down, right? And he came down and he took the form of a servant in his whole life. He lived humbly. He lived like a servant. And he says he, he was obedient to death. And he adds that little line, even death on the cross. He was so obedient that he dies the way that only the worst of the worst were created to die. That if you were a Roman citizen, you could not even die this way. And Paul says, that's what Jesus did. And he humbled himself when he left his father's side and came to earth. And then when he was born, he was basically born into a barn. And then he grows up and he humbles himself by the way he lives. He humbles with himself by the people he hangs out with. Not the high class, but the low class, the sinners and the prostitutes. And, and he touches people who are sick and he heals the sick. And then he humbled himself to, that he allowed himself to die on the cross. And he humbled himself when he was praying in the garden. He said, God, I, I don't know if I want to do this, but it's your will, not my will. And he humbled himself when he died for you and for me. And Paul says, if you want to unhitch from your pride... If you want to stop, stop allowing pride to, to dominate your life, even if you don't even realize it, if you don't want to be like Abimelech, if you don't want to be like the world around you, here's what you got to do. You have to continually recognize. You got to continually, meaning change your mindset, think about it over and over again. Recognize the ocean of grace that was poured out on the cross. What that means, you can't look at the cross and all the work that Jesus did, be proud of yourself. You can't look at the cross and be full of you. That's why God opposes the pride. He said, it says, God opposes the pride. He said, because you can't be full of you and recognize what Jesus has done. Because when you look at the cross, here's what you realize. There's nothing I did to deserve what Jesus did for me. There's nothing I can do to earn it. There's no accomplishment. There's no money I can make. There's no house I can buy to receive this grace that I was freely given. But Jesus, I'll give it to you anyways. There's this theme in the book of Judges that says they did what was right in their own eyes because they had no king. All God says, Israel, Israel just obey. Just obey. Do what I want you to do. Do what's right in my eyes, not your eyes. And all Jesus is asking from us, he says, don't do what's right in your own eyes. Stop living pridefully. Stop living in such a way where you're your worst enemy. Stop doing things that you know are going to hurt people around you. Because you can't save yourself from any of that. I can save you though. But you got to unhitch. You got to unhitch from your pride. Unhitch from your mess. You got to humble yourself. You got to follow me. 
Get unhitched from your pride. It's tough. Gotta unhitch from your mess. That's easy, we don't like messes. And then you gotta humble yourself. You gotta follow me. You gotta believe that I'm the way, that I'm the truth and the life. Now nothing in your life you have is really from you, it's from me. So the question is, are you unhitching from your pride? Are you unhitching from your mess? Are you living humbly? And are you following? That's the question. He says you gotta follow. But to follow in very nature means you gotta decide that you're no longer in charge. So the question we gotta look from Abimelech into Jesus is, how am I following? How am I living? Because if I'm prideful, if I think I'm better, if I'm superior, if I think all, everybody else is the mess and it's not me, Jesus says you got a long way to go. Just keep following. Unhitch from pride, from your mess, and follow me. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you allow us to follow you. That actually you call us into a relationship with you. That you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so we could be in relationship with you. And then Jesus' mission in this earth was to, to show people that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That no one gets to you except through him. Father, so I pray that we're a church that, that we don't just say with lip service that we follow Jesus. But we show it. because and The way we show it is that we unhitch from pride. We unhitch from judgmentalness. We unhitch from unforgiveness. We unhitch from all the things that get in the way of following you. God, because all we want to do and all we want to be it's a church that follows you in all of our life, and the way we live, and the way we talk, and the way we, we parent, and the way we handle our marriages. God, we love you so much because you loved us first. So your name we pray. Amen. It's been great hanging out with you guys today. I hope that message challenges you and encourages you today. We would love to have you on campus sometime at one of our services at 8.30 or 10.45 on Sunday. Or to find out more information about RSEC, you can always go to the RSEC Family app. Or follow us on any social media platform at RSCC Family. Most of all, remember, you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says you matter. Now go and be blessed.